Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. Today's episode hones in on mascot issues in sport, featuring an interview with Michael Rowley and Jeffrey Montez de Oca. This conversation is hosted by Kim Woozy. This is McKenna Duda, your podcast host. I'm a Cal State East Bay alum, former collegiate, now recreational runner, and I just recently earned my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. I operate within Orange County, California as a sports manager, plus I direct and write the scripts for this pod. So glad to be here again. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport and social justice. All athletes, sports fans, and social justice advocates are welcome. Please take a moment to consider today's mindful moment tip. The power within having a community is immense. Having a common goal, or better yet, Holding similar values as other community members serves to connect and build relationships. A community has the power to impact decisions and to also provide resources for action. In regards to this episode, it is important to recognize that a community can be served in a beneficial or a harmful way. While connection can bring beauty, it can also create isolation and persist inequities. I encourage y'all to consider the importance of community in relation to sports. You may have shared similar sentiments throughout struggle and victory. However, these memories are not held within a specific symbol or desire. The goal of a community should be to best represent and serve its community. It is a community member's duty to evaluate and critically analyze actions, regulations, and guidelines in effect, and to also assess the reason behind these actions and principles. Question everything and act out of love, not fear. Mascots and symbols have long been used as a source of pride within sports. This can be problematic and stir up issues when a symbol used may be offensive. We have seen this at all levels, from high school and college, all the way to the pros. In relation to Cal State East Bay, the pioneer remains a symbol of the school. Yet, the visual representation was removed after a recent initiative was put into play. This led to the investigation of the symbol's origins and the conclusion that Pioneer Pete did not promote inclusivity. The Pioneer, symbolic of Manifest Destiny, also continues to reinforce Native people's displacement and also industrialist and genocidal impulses. Because sport is powerful in bringing together a community, compassion and understanding alongside the deconstruction of personal beliefs is key to tackling mascot issues. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Making Moves podcast. My name is Kim Woozy, and I'm your host today. For this episode, we have Michael Rowley and Jeffrey Montez de Oca. Uh, welcome to the pod, Michael and Jeff. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and share with our listeners who you are. You both are um, very uh, amazing, impressive, 
uh, folks in our community. So Michael Rowley is an assistant professor in the kinesiology department at California State University East Bay right here in Hayward, California. Um, Michael teaches anatomy and biomechanics to kin undergrads and also studies neuromuscular control of movement in the context of high intensity movement demands of dance with the goals of reducing injury risk and improving rehabilitation. In particular, Michael focuses on dance styles and genres typically underrepresented in dance medicine and science with the aim to improve equity and access to evidence-based healthcare and training for all dancers. And second, we have Jeffrey Montez de Oca, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, where he teaches courses on political economy, gender, media, and sociological theory. His research interests locate sport media and marketing within U.S. imperialism and settler colonialism. He has also published on doping, sport performance, and American Indian boarding schools. Jeffrey, Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Loved our conversation from season one. So we just had to bring you back. Um, <laughs> but thank you both for being here today. We'll start off with just uh, sharing uh, where y'all joining and chatting with us from. And as a fun icebreaker question, what is your beverage of choice? Jeff, do you want to start us off? Sure. Well, I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's a beautiful winter day here. I think it's going to get up into the 50s. So we're pretty stoked about that. And my beverage of choice at this time of the day is water. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. At night, I'll have a beer or a mixed drink or something like that. And then in the morning, coffee. And then the rest of the day at this high altitude, I'm spending trying to rehydrate. <laughs> nice. Uh, can't go wrong with water. How about you, Michael? Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm here on campus right now at Cal State East Bay uh, in Hayward, California. Uh, beverage of choice, I've been really into micheladas lately. I've been trying all the different michelada flavors coming out, different uh, people producing them. So, so micheladas are my, my drink of choice right now. Excellent. All right, well, let's jump into today's topic, which is about mascot, mascot issues within you know, the sports realm, you know, across the board, not just professional, but all the way down to, you know, youth, the youth level. Um, but first off, uh, can either of you just share with, you know, the listeners and myself who, you know, for me, this is a relatively newer topic. Um, saw a lot of, you know, um, articles and conversations in, in, in media last in the past few years. But how did the use of mascots come into existence in the world of sports? Well, I can address that to, to start us off. Um, so it's a really curious thing, the whole use of, of mascots, and it, it does make sense. So the term mascot, it comes from a French word, as I understand it. I'm not going to try to mispronounce the, the French word, but basically it, it's a reference to, lucky, to a lucky charm. And so it was something that actually comes from gambling and mascots originally were inanimate objects. So it might be, you know, something like a, a lucky rabbit's foot, the, you know, the, the figurehead at the front of a boat is a mascot, but then it does come into the world of sport. And, and originally um, it tended to be actual person was the mascot. And that person was seen as bringing luck to the team and the team would adopt uh, the person as a mascot. Then it's really, it's in the 1880s 
that mascots become very normal with uh, sporting teams. And um, some of the things to think about is like, what do mascots do? You know, if you think about most sports teams, they're constantly in flux and changing. The players change, the coaching staff changes from season to season. They're going to, you know, have ups, they're going to have downs. So there's a tremendous amount of of change um, and uh, fluidity there. Mascots are seemingly eternal. They're stable. They don't change from year to year. So they provide a link from one season to the next season in a world of change and uh, and unpredictability. The other thing that mascots really do, especially since the 1880s and especially in since the early 20th century, it's really about branding. You know, if you think about the old word of the original meaning of branding of making a mark that claims ownership. So again, that fixity, that naming, that fixity and naming allows people to form a stable relationship with the entity um, and develop an identity that incorporates that entity, that team or franchise into their own identity. So really it also becomes about marketing and having that personal relationship with what is otherwise a pretty faceless corporate entity, whether it's a professional team or a professionalized team like collegiate sports. Um, and so these are really, you know, impersonal entities, but you can you can have that powerful, powerful emotional relationship and the feelings of intimacy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's like something that kind of we don't, the average person, like including myself, doesn't really stop to think about. So thanks, Jeff, for sort of breaking that down. That all makes a lot of sense. Uh, Michael, can you speak to specifically, you know, CSU East Bay and um, anything that you can share about sort of the origins of the mascot for East Bay? Yeah, definitely. So uh, a a couple of years ago, as, as part of a process, East Bay went through looking at looking at our mascot and, and maybe some problematic aspects associated with it. Um, Robin Perry, a Cal State East Bay history major, uh, did kind of a deep dive into where our mascot came from, uh, collecting all the instances where our mascot appeared, you know, when and in what contexts. And uh, the way it turns out, it, it's actually the, the same year that at the, at the time we were Alameda County State College, the same year that we broke ground um, up here in the Hayward Hills uh, was the year that President Kennedy uh, and NASA started the, the Pioneer Space Program. Uh, this is like space race, Cold War era. Um, and so Pioneer was selected, I believe at the time it wasn't even referred to as a mascot, but more of a theme. So Pioneer was sort of picked as a, as a theme for us breaking ground and for this new frontier and this, this, this new college. Um, what's, what's interesting then is that the, the Pioneer shows up, the, the astronaut really, uh, but called the Pioneer, shows up a couple times over the next few years, but then pretty much disappears for about 12 years and doesn't resurface until 1972 
when we changed our name to CSU Hayward, California State University Hayward. So fitting in sort of with what, with what Jeff just said, it's, it was a, a branding, a marketing, you know, when, when big change happened at the university, kind of seems like we, we leaned on our mascot uh, to kind of, you know, as Jeff was saying, get us through that, that unpredictability, that turbulent time is when we leaned on the mascot. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing that um, insight. So today I'm curious, we are here to talk about, you know, the issues, what just on a high level, you know, kind of 101, what are, what do you both see are the issues like to discuss? Because it's a complex, it's, it's complex, right? Everything we talk about on this podcast, it's a discussion. There's not an easy, simple answer. So just from your perspective, Jeff, what are the issues at hand. Sure. You know, and, and, and I should say, I, I don't have a, an issue with branding in and of itself. These are um, institutions that need to make money. Even, you know, I still want to call it Hayward State. Uh, I'm so jealous, Michael. I, I would love to be at Cal State East Bay at Hayward State because I'm from the East Bay. Um, so I, I get it. You know, a public institution, it needs to generate revenue from its sports franchise, its sports teams. And, and that's especially true for the, for the professional leagues. Uh, so in and of itself, I'm not against branding and I'm not against mascots. For me, the issues, it becomes an issue when it gets wrapped up with other larger um, dynamics. And in particular, so for me, what I care about the most is the use of indigenous peoples as mascots. Or in the case of Cal State East Bay, the way in which manifest destiny vis-a-vis the term pioneer, Kennedy's new frontier, which of course was mobilizing a narrative of manifest destiny, uh, basically the conquest of territory and the displacement of people. And so when we talk about indigenous mascots or American Indian mascots uh, in the context of the US, really what we're talking about is settler colonialism. And anytime we're talking about um, indigenous peoples and settler colonialism, we're really talking about struggles over land resources, territory, the territorialization of land and the conquest of land. And, 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 they, and these are such good things to talk about because they really bring into, into focus these much larger, very serious issues in a realm that seems like it's just fun. It's totally innocuous. I mean, it's the pioneers. It's, you know, the Aztecs. It's whatever, right? And, 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 and so this history that gets wrapped up in the sp space of pleasure and fun and community, it's really about a history of conquest. So in the early period of conquest, it was done, you know, coercion, you know, the removal of people from land. We're familiar with these stories from our high school history classes, our college history classes, PBS documentaries. But then there's a switch, you know, after the land is conquered, once conquest is 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 completed, then it's about stabilizing control over the land and resources. And in a civil society, basing the control and ownership over the land purely on violence and coercion isn't as legitimate, and it's not as 
desirable. And so then we see a shift to symbolic forms of domination, you know, more ideological. And, and that's really what we see with indigenous mascots or in, in the case of Cal State East Bay, you know, the narrative of how the West was one being embedded in the social and cultural landscape. And so we're really talking about settler colonialism when we're discussing the issue of indigenous mascots. Yeah, and I uh, yeah, I totally totally agree with that, Jeff. I think that was well put. And you know, just kind of using the pioneer again as as an example of this, um, the actual image that Cal State East Bay used for the pioneer through the seventies and eighties, he has a revolver and he has a, a bag of gold attached to his his waistcoat, right? So he's he's very much we're, we're moving away from the astronaut of the sixties at this point, and we're into the manifest destiny sort of image of the pioneer. Um, and I also want to kind of, you know, add that people might say that these are sort of historical, like we're not doing these things anymore. These are old issues. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've reached the West Coast, we've, we've pioneered, we've settled. But these same images are being used right now to talk about oppression and displacement, right? You can read any number of news articles about Detroit, right? Like a, a very large, primarily Black city that had, that had and, and has struggled, but had a thriving, you know, uh, uh, economic center, you can read articles about it now calling it the, an, an urban frontier that needs to be resettled. We need urban pioneers, right? And, and this means white people moving in. Um, and so there's still displacement happening, right? There's still capitalist violence happening with people, you know, losing their homes and losing land in Detroit. Um, so yeah, these, these are not old issues that we're, that we're done with, right? These, these images are still being used to, to, to continue oppression. Yeah. And just to kind of dig deeper in that direction, it just seems like whether it's interesting with East Bay because the mascot is a pioneer and then you have other schools or entities where the mascot is representing an indigenous, you know, uh, person or, or group. Um, just those teams competing against each other feels weird and gross, you know? And so I think just from a gut level, there is, this is why this has been being discussed and kind of reassessed because where we're at today, it just, it just doesn't really sit right. Um, I'm curious in just what you all have seen in, in your research and your teachings. It's very easy to kind of say, okay, this is bad and wrong. We need to fix it. Get rid of it. Like it doesn't work anymore. You know, what are the perspectives that we might be missing that maybe like, are there things that people don't think about or is there some sort of positive in the sense, like I was listening to a, a reading an article recently about a, a, um, an elementary school out on the East coast and the, it kind of divided the whole community. And on the pro side was actually a leader from the indigenous, the local indigenous community saying, Hey, like this is, I'm for this because this is, this preserves us as a people. Is there anything kind of like, you know, what are the complex layers here that, that maybe we don't think about when we just are learning about this topic? Um, sure, sure. I mean, that, like you said, there's complex layers, right? Um, we've, we've talked branding and marketing, right? That means there's a lot of money wrapped up in mascots and, and in changing them, right? Um, we've talked identity, right? So a lot of people are 
connecting their identity to these mascots, right? Their alma mater, where they went to school, what they were called while they were there. Um, and those are all very difficult things to kind of uproot um, to create change. Um, with the pioneers here at East Bay specifically, there's, there's, there's been conversations happening. Is it possible to, re, to keep the word pioneer and the name pioneer, but to sort of reframe it, right? Like reclaim it, maybe re, redefine it. Um, and there's, there's mixed opinions on that for whether, whether, you know, how we would do that if, if we thought it was possible to do that. Um, you know, and, and I, and I personally am, am of the thought that, you know, we can, we can talk about the pioneers any way we want to, but the shorthand is still pioneer and it's still going to have the impact that it has, you know, around the country and around the world with, with all, with everything that it symbolizes. So, uh, you know, Yeah. You know, these are such great questions that you're raising. You're, I was actually just thinking about the, um, some people in Indian country were referring to the Super Bowl a couple years ago between San Francisco and Kansas City as the, as the Manifest Destiny Bowl, because you have two narratives, right? The Kansas City Chiefs are meeting the San Francisco 49ers. And actually, if you look at the 49ers' original mascot, when they were still part of the I think it was called the All-American Football League, the AAFL. Um, it was a prospector who was like drunk, like looked like Yosemite Sam drunken, jumping in the air and shooting two six guns, right? Or two, uh, what is it? Two six shooters. Uh, so, you know, you that the way in which manifest destiny becomes narrativized within these pleasurable spaces. And so... There are, it, it is so complicated, as you said, um, thinking through these, these issues and trying to understand where people are coming from and what is the basis of the claim. Uh, I mean, so me personally, I find um, the indigenous mascots super problematic for a variety of reasons that, that I can talk about, but it also makes a difference who is the person naming? Because naming is about claiming and claiming is about defining, defining what is, what is right, what is wrong, defining what is reality um, and people's identities form in relationship to, to those sorts of dynamics. And so when you're looking at say, there, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for, um, sports teams, high school teams on reservations uh, to be named the Indians, things, things like that. And so then it's a claim of ownership over our identity within an indigenous community. It's very different when that same name is being mobilized in a non-indigenous community by a settler community. And one of the things the research is really clear about there is that there are some serious harms with that. I mean, on top of the sort of the symbolic violence in a very general abstract way, the way I've been discussing it, but in terms of the way in which indigenous kids at those schools experience um, their culture being parodied, the way that they are more likely to experience bullying based on their their race and identity, and the fact that their um, self esteem is more likely to be lower if there's an indigenous, uh, you know, mascot at, at that school. On the other hand, you do have people for uh, there's an old joke 
that anytime you go out into, if you get two Indians together in a room, you've got an argument. And so despite the stereo, you know, various stereotypes about us, we're very political and we're very contentious. And anytime you go out into Indian country, right, it, there's politics are very, very contentious. And why certain people in different positions, whether they're in an institutional position within the tribe and nation or not, why they may or may not support the naming, um, can, there's a lot of reasons for that. And, uh, and sometimes it is just in a environment that is so disrespectful, that is so traumatizing, that any sort of recognition can feel like a positive, even if that rec recognition is negative and harmful. Um, and sometimes it's just, we might get some kind of deal out of this. Because again, things can be really political. So it is a very, as, as you're getting at, it's a very complicated, um, fraught issue. Absolutely. And like the easiest example I can think of um, that's not necessarily related, but for just for me to understand and maybe for our listeners to understand is that even the organization I work for, Skate Like a Girl, that was, if that's said, depending on who's saying that, that could be a negative like put down for young kids, right? Oh, you play like a girl, you throw like a girl, you skate like a girl. But then we essentially reclaimed that and coming from us it, it's a different it means something different right um i'm curious then do you feel in either of you do you feel that it the kind of solution and i know we're not looking for easy answers or quick solutions but is that we it's not an easy blanket rule it's like it every situation needs to be looked at and could moving forward there exist in our world of whether it's you know a, a local school sports team or a professional team where there is the um usage of you know uh i would say indigenous culture indigenous people in some way that is actually respectful and moving towards a more inclusive community like do you think it's possible or do you think it's like mm, i don't know like it's, it seems a little bit like that, then you're just opening it up to people being, okay, well, if they're doing it, we're going to do it. You know, what do you guys think? It's a great question. Your, your questions are excellent, Kim. Um, so this is one of the things you hear all the time. So you like new journalists will do will write these stories and they'll say, we conducted a poll and X number of people, you know, X number of American Indians say they support, you know, the use of mascots. And then you look at their, the methodology and, and it's super fraught. Uh, you know, they, they don't even know who they're actually talking to and, and they're calling them Amer American Indians and saying they speak for a community. Maybe they do and maybe they don't. Uh, you always hear, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the discourse of honor we're honoring you. This is an honor, right? We're, you know, we're recognizing you. Um, or, or the solution is, well, if we're just authentic, if we strive for authenticity, then everything is fine. Who gets to determine what is authentic? What is authentic in what situation and in what time period? To what degree do does the mobilization of American Indian and other indigenous people's imagery 
when is it ever drawn from the present? You know, when is it somebody who looks like me, you know, somebody very fair skinned who doesn't look like an Indian? I mean, I'm authentic, right? In, 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 in a certain sense, but then I'm totally inauthentic in other senses. And, and so, there, again, going back to your other question, there, there really isn't a simple answer here. And, and, and I don't think we want to focus on very sort of individualistic kind of notions of, is this inclusive? Does this one person feel good? For me as a sociologist, it's, well, what are the larger patterns here? And what are the institutional relations? And what is the political and ideological work that this naming convention does? And so does the naming convention advance settler colonialism or is the naming convention really about a decolonial project and giving ownership and authorship to indigenous people rather than you know, supporting the pleasure and consumption of non-Indigenous people who can, you know, vaguely say they're, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm honoring you, dude. But while they're participating in this much larger, highly commercialized spectacle. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, that's, that was great, Jeff. There's a lot to think about there. I, just throwing in one, one piece, which you, which you sort of mentioned is about like, you know, in all of these conversations, uh, you know, I think uh, ideally they're, they're happening at a local level for, for local organizations. There are, some, there are some national organizations that need to do this work also, but, you know, they're happening at a local level and, you know, thinking about whose voices are in the room, right? I think a lot, we can, you can have a, a, you know, a school board meeting or, a, you know, you can have a, an organizational meeting with influential people and with maybe some representatives, but it's hard to know and it's hard to really ensure that everybody who has a stake has a voice in the room and that voice has equal weight. Yeah. Thank you both. I'm curious for either of you, you know, what we're talking about in, in our whole podcast is just these different, you know, issues within sport. I'm curious, like, what do you, why do you think it's important to educate, you know, sort of this next generation of, of students and young people who are listening around this topic why does it matter and how does this impact this larger thing that we love and do called sport yeah well you know i'll speak uh you know as an educator i i view it as you know one benefit of of keeping this in the forefront and talking to students about this and educating is that it's you know these same things that we're talking about settler colonialism, capitalism, oppression, displacement, you know, these are still ongoing and these have a long history and the mascot issue is just one of any number of issues. And so it can actually, because people do have a kind of a personal identity tied to mascots, it can actually be kind of a great gateway to helping people understand these issues more broadly. Um, and so, so for me in talking with this about students, you know, I, I like to, in as much as I talk about it, use it as, you know, it, it, if we got rid of the pioneer mascot tomorrow, we're not solving settler colonialism, right? Like keeping that in mind and, and including it as part of an educational process for these bigger picture issues. 
Yeah, I think I'd just like to reiterate what Michael said, because I think he's he's spot on there that it's because mascots seem so innocuous or um, innocuous um, and uh, and they're just part of the landscape that our students are already familiar with. They they all know uh, they all grew up with high schools with mascots, many of them with indigenous names and likenesses. Um, they've heard the, the debates or they've heard these things, I should say, are controversial. Then it opens up a window through which they can then look at much larger dynamics of political economy, of colonization, of race, of identity. Um, some of those discussions are going to be familiar, you know, the kind of liberal language around identity that our, our students tend to already be familiar with. But, but then we can then move that discussion into a much more thorough, as Michael was saying, interrogation of capitalism and settler colonialism. And, and what seems so innocuous and what seems like just fun, all of a sudden our students are like, oh man, there's really, there's much larger issues going on here. And with and then with some luck, and if we've done our jobs well, you know, they'll take an interest in and look at some of those those other dynamics. Because I'm just, you know, and again, I'm just repeating Michael, right? You can change the name, but that doesn't give ownership of, of the land back. Yeah, and uh, topics like this one seem to really invoke emotions in people, whether you're on the side of like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a silly, you know, thing in sports and that's just a game or, you know, on the other side where it's like, hey, this is actually very wrong and offensive. I think either way, the fact that it is a topic that does invoke emotion means that it is one that we should be continuing to lean into. And also what a great way to look at just life in general, especially for young people. Cause again, I, I agree like sports are such an entry point for everyone. You know, most people can understand, you know, sports or have some relationship to being a fan or participating and I think that's a really valuable kind of life lesson is to say, hey, when there's something that has just been away before I was born, you know, and this is just how things are, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to keep going that way. And then on an individual level, it's also like I can go back and look at things and change my thinking or have discussions around things that I used to not care about or used to just say, hey, no, it has to be this way. I think just kind of living, embodying that ability and willingness to have difficult or layered and complex conversations is actually uh, a great kind of like lesson for all of us, whether you're young or old. And that's what I really appreciate about, you know, what sports can do for all of us. It, it has us examine and talk about these things that maybe wouldn't come into, you know, our radar. We wouldn't feel emotional about because it's our favorite team or whatever. Right. So I think that's also really unique. Um, I'm curious, uh, uh, Michael, I believe that that you've been involved in sort of just more of the, um, there's like been case studies at, at East Bay and just you're personally involved in sort of like the grassroots movement around the mascot. Can you share a little bit more about that work and what you're seeing? Um, yeah, sure. So uh, a couple of years ago, just um, 
three years ago now, uh, there was a, a resolution that was passed through academic senate uh, basically acknowledging the, the problematic aspects, specifically at, at the time of the representation, the visual representation of our mascot, um, the pioneers. And the, the, our former university president created a task force that then sort of investigated, got input, held town hall meetings, uh, listened to people. At the end of that process, Cal State East Bay officially retired our physical representation of the pioneer and did not replace it. So on paper, we do not have a mascot. I've been using the word mascot, but I, I shouldn't be. What we still have is a brand, right? So we've removed the visual representation of the pioneer. We no longer have a mascot, but we are still branded the pioneers. Um, and that is obviously, well, I think a step in the right direction, um, but it does not solve, it doesn't make all these issues go away. Um, and so what we've been pushing for uh, with the Center for Sport and Social Justice uh, here at Cal State East Bay, uh, we've kind of done, done a, a little bit of a dive into the recent history of how that change happened, how the mascot was dropped. And we're, we're trying to build some grassroots energy to get this looked at again uh, to, to change the, the brand now itself. Um, and primarily, so the, the sort of on paper way to do that is get a resolution passed through academic Senate, president creates a task force, task force makes a recommendation. That's the, you know, uh, hierarchy based university power based method of how change happens. Uh, but I think a lot of people who are involved in any type of political activism know that that's not exactly how change happens. You have to have grassroots pressure and organization first. And so we've been, as a department, we've been trying to kind of stir that up a bit. Um, we've made some specific goals over the last few months. Uh, people in our department have volunteered to have conversations with people in other departments to get people thinking about this to make sure everybody knows about the process that happened a few years ago and, and what the current issues remaining still are. So for us right now, it's a lot of having conversations, spreading the message, asking questions, getting people to think about it. And in our slightly longer term goal to, to eventually pursue that, that actual mechanism for change. Gotcha. Are there any current ways for students to be involved? Um, yeah, I think we have a, a couple student um, representative organizations, right? Whether those are elected students or, or just student groups. Um, as, as much as those groups can be talking to each other and talking within themselves and making their opinions and their, their, their positions public, right? Writing position statements, talking to faculty, talking to department chairs, spreading that around. All of that kind of energy and especially like cohesive uh, energy, uh, I think, is going to help move the needle on this issue. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. Um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into just specifically the NCAA. Um, in 2005, they ruled to ban hostile and abusive mascots, and that remains in effect to this day. Uh, it sounds like self-examinations were the assessment tool used to define whether a school's mascot was abusive or not. Knowing this, do you feel that this was an effective means of addressing this issue or do you have a different perspective around how this could be more effective or just what are your general thoughts about that? 
I, I mean, so for, so from my perspective, I mean, I'm always going to support uh, policy of this nature that's going to draw attention to um, racist imagery, harmful imagery, and then uh, and then act to ban it. Because if we leave it to the individual institutions consistently, we're going to find many are going to are going to resist for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and I'm sure uh, Michael can can talk about that much more effectively. Uh, than I can, having gone through the process at Cal State East Bay. I mean, my my complaint with it would be the very sort of individualist language that they use and not drawing attention to settler colonialism. Would I expect the NCA to do that? No, of course not. Um, <laughs> but I would like for them to do that. And I would like to see a, a much stronger critique of this history written into the law, into the policy, but short of that, you know, I was very happy to see when they created this policy. This kind of leads me to another question is who who is generally the pushback? Is it, I think, specifically with NCAA or just even in professional sports? Can you, either of you speak to that? Oh, well, I can speak to uh, the results of the task force finding from a couple years ago. And uh, uh, Kim Baker Flowers was the was the chair of that task force, I believe. Um, but the uh, largest group in opposition when we surveyed all Cal State East Bay constituents, community, et cetera, was the alumni. Uh, the alumni were the most uh, vocally opposed to dropping the mascot. And um, I, I believe that it's back to what we were saying about identity, right? About a kind of a, a strong sense of identity tied to it for our alumni. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems like also just in you know, in my experiences working with youth, um, the, like when you're younger, your brain is just more, you know, it's developing still, but just younger folks seem to be able to adapt to things and say, yeah, that sounds great. Let's move forward and, and transform. And then as we get older, we get more attached to like our ways and things like that. So that is interesting that the pushback is generally, it's, I guess it sounds like from folks who have more of an emotional attachment or history with something. Do you see that, Jeff, in like professional sports and sort of these commercialized institutions where it's people who either have a financial investment or have this kind of like nostalgia, you know, influencing their ability to be empathetic for others? I mean, I would say it's it's really both from the research I've done and the or I should say the research I've looked at, uh, and and I'd, I'd I'd be hesitant to blame it too much on old people being nostalgic, because young people can be very nostalgic too. Um, I mean, I just I love you know speaking of nostalgia. This is great scene in the movie City Slickers, which many people may have seen, where the Billy Crystal's character is talking about the best day he ever had, and he went to a New York Yankees game, and he describes all the aspects of it, and central to that because the movie is really about how do young men or youngish men form their masculine identities in the world we live in today, the city slickers. Um, and, and it's really about bonding with his father. And that's so much of sport. You know, it certainly rings true for me that my love of sport is tied to my love for my father 
my love for my brother, my love for my sons, watching my sons having a relationship with my father, you know, vis-a-vis the San Francisco 49ers and, 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 and whatnot. And so, and, and this is confirmed by the way that say the NFL looks at its marketing and understands how to sell its commodity, which is selling an image of community about those bonds of intimacy that people form through participation in sport and around the participation of sport. And, and so when you say a central aspect of that thing, that name is bad, that name is hurtful, then it draws into question all the aspects of that whole much larger, you know, social, cultural, personal complex to say like, well, what else is bad? Am I bad? You know, are you saying my love for my family is bad? Are you saying my love for my community is bad? And so I think that's where a lot of that defensiveness comes from when we see fans and alumni in particular reacting. Certainly, it's very expensive to change a brand because of, you know, you're always going to get pushback because of those emotional connections that people have. And, you know, then there's the letterhead and all that kind of stuff that you got to change, you know, that's more that, that's that's more measurable. So, so yeah, absolutely. For both um, economic reasons, personal, emotional reasons, you know, identity, uh, for all of that, it, it's, uh, it, it's very, very powerful and very challenging to, to people because it, it draws, you know, their whole community into question. Yeah. And we see something similar about that with, again, just speaking kind of from skateboarding, which is a little bit, it's an interesting case study because it is not as institutional is not as institutionalized, not as commercialized yet, or it's in the process, but it's a lot younger than sort of these traditional sports, but on just the ground level of human to human interaction, um, we're seeing this sort of like acknowledgement or, or addressing of these problematic issues within the root of like skateboarding culture, which is comes from a very, um, hyper a uh, male dominated counterculture uh uh kind of like background right it was kind of like sticking it to the man anti rules anti establishment um but what's interesting that i we started to see as well is that those same problematic aspects and again just because we're calling out certain pieces doesn't mean that everything around skateboarding or everything around what you know maybe older men have their relationship to skateboarding. It doesn't mean that it's all bad. Right. But I can see where like one might feel that way. But what's interesting to notice is that the same pieces that impact folks that are marginalized, folks of other gender, other races or other ages um, also have negative impacts on those folks who are in that dominant identity. So that's something that I think doesn't really get talked about too. And for us specifically, it's, Things like, okay, if someone, if, if bullying and being mean to someone because they're a beginner skateboarder is, you know, and is it, is, if that's part of the whole thing, like you gotta kind of get hazed to become part of this culture, then the, the young men who are, do become sort of the leaders in the culture also are impacted by that same problematic behavior. 
So it's kind of like a lose-lose for everyone, even though you can't really see that, you know, on the surface. And I wonder if that applies to um, this issue as well. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I, you bring up an excellent point, and you know, kind of bringing it back to our pioneers. You know, there, there's there's negative impacts of that that uh, persona, that value system um, on on everybody, right? Even the the dominant culture, right? There's the individualism. There's the disconnection from community. There's the the narrow image of the you know his him and his wife and their kids, right? Like the the heterosexist you know so uh, uh, assumptions and yeah. So so you're right. There's there's negative impacts to to even the dominant group when when mascots that that represent certain values are are used. Yeah, and yeah, and just to just to to connect to that, you know, I, I think the work that Michael has been doing is so important. Because when you're narr- when you're interrogating the Im- the the image of the pioneer that's so central to the story of the nation, right? I always say, right? There's 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 a way in which the history of the United States gets told through allegory, and it's how the West was won. Well, we're a shine. The United States, we're a shining city on the hill, right? We're a moral community, and then if you have somebody like Michael come along and say, "Well, hold on a second. This community is founded on violence and on settler colonialism, and you narrativize that in these spaces of pleasure that you enjoy and you form your your identity through, well, then you're a part of that colonialism. And, And that can create a kind of disjuncture in people's heads where, you know, you're supposed to know you know, you, you're supposed to be able to hold two contradictory facts in your head at the same time and not see the contradiction. And then people come along and say, hey, there's the contradiction. And you're participating in that contradiction. Then it's like, am I even a moral person? And we see that with our students all the time where they're like, you know, as as they're presented with information they've never had to, they've never been presented with or the information's framed in a way they're not familiar with. And you can see, you know, the wheels spinning in their head and there's a kind of, you know, existential angst going on about, you know, is the world what I thought it was? I thought the world was a good place. I thought this, you know, the United States was a moral community. And they're like, oh, my God, we're so immoral. Um, Yeah, it can be very traumatizing for people. But I I believe it's a really positive process to work through. I don't think education should always be fun and, and easy. Um, and, and I think we should struggle with moral questions as we're configuring and reconfiguring our identity and the institutions that we populate. And perhaps the takeaway is just that in order to really be a human to the fullest is to find a way to accept the controversy of your own self, you know? Um, and it, I, I do kind of believe that if that's something that everyone can sort of embrace and sort of resist, then we can't, we can all sort of like have space to have these, I don't know, deeper discussions, but also understand the different perspectives versus the good, bad, or, you know, black and white, I think, just to be able to say, hey, like, as humans, we are complex, and it's okay to be conflicted internally. um, And just to be find peace with that on some level. Um, Yeah, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. And, you know, I think it also requires us having compassion for ourselves, right? Like being able to embark on that 
that it's deconstruction, right? Is, is what it is to be able to embark on that deconstruction and to, to ask myself, have I, have I hurt people by the things I've done in the past and the things I've supported, right? Um, having compassion with ourselves and forgiveness and being able to, to, to move forward and in, in continue to try to do better. A hundred percent. Cause if we are asking, you know, folks to have compassion for others, you know, like it, oftentimes that does, that does need to start with yourself. And that way, you know, you can actually be, be the change you wish to see. Um, so just kind of on that, on that note, and just a, as a wrap up question, um, any kind of advice and I hate to like give advice to people, but any sort of insight that anyone who's listening, whether it's students or folks in our community can take on in terms of better understanding, whether it's this topic or these controversial conflicted topics. Um, and just in general, like when they see the usage or maybe their favorite sports team is, you know, doing something that's problematic or hurting others, um, any thoughts on how we can kind of grapple with that just on a, on a daily tangible action level, like even going to CSU East Bay games, like, I don't know. Right. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, where I, there's lots of, there's lots of potential answers to this question, I guess, but where I'm at right now is, uh, having conversations, building awareness, encouraging people to question these things. And, and one way into that, I think, is, um, you know, if, if you do encounter, uh, you're talking with someone and you do encounter a lot of resistance to, to wanting to, to question that, that piece, right? Why the mascot of their favorite sports team or whatever, um, you know, connect like hearing and, and connecting with stories of the people that mascot impacts negatively. And even if it's not about the mascot, right? Like read, I, I just finished reading uh, There There by Tommy Orange, uh, a story, a, a book, a novel about uh, Native Americans living in the Oakland area uh, in, in present day. And it doesn't have anything to do with mascots. They don't talk about mascots at all, but it's a, it's a narrative and it allows people to kind of see and connect with and understand what the current experience is like for a lot of urban Native Americans in the United States. And uh just that process, you know, finish that book and then say, you know, let's have a conversation about this mascot just kind of removes a lot of the, the resistance and the barriers. And you're actually sort of thinking about and talking about people and their, 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 you know, their realities and their, the impacts on them and from a much more sort of empathetic place, I think. So, so I, you know, I guess I'd bottom line it by saying connecting with stories from people and, and places that you don't have familiarity with is, is one way to open yourself and other people to these conversations. It's such a great suggestion. And it's consistent with what I've read in the research on, on the mascot movements or, or the anti-mascot movements, I suppose I should say that if, um, you know, and, and I get this from Laurel Davis Delano, who's done a ton of research on, on, mascot activism. And one of the things that she's found is that if, if people within the community see the challenge against the mascot as a legitimate challenge, then they're likely to support it. Whereas if they're, they don't see the challenge as legitimate, they're very unlikely to, to support changing the name and changing the identity and all of these other things. And so being able to take a position of empathy, as Michael suggests, 
as you educate people, then you can agitate them and then you can organize, right? Educate, agitate, organize. And that's how you're going to, you know, be much more likely to see the, the movement be successful. Thank you both so much uh, for this amazing conversation today. I hope that um, our listeners are inspired or walk away with uh, something new, uh, a new perspective, or just maybe something to think about. So again, appreciate both of you, Michael and Jeff, um, for being on the podcast today. And uh, we'll see you back for the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. It was produced by McKenna Duda, Kim Muzi, Nikhil Kernar, and Kashal Sheshadri. The music is by Marby Miller. A big thank you to the Center for Sport and Social Justice co-directors, Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support. Funding for Making Moves was provided by Cal State University East Bay and the Center for Sport and Social Justice. Make sure to catch all six episodes of Making Moves, streaming now on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.